Through the lens of loving local and seeing global, we obsessively search for people whose stories need to be told and how OKC played a supporting role. Hosted by Katherine Bexton and Emmy Coves, welcome to Action City. Emmy, here we are again. <laughs> Hi, Catherine. I'm so excited to see you. Emmy and I have some some exciting things happening this week. Emma from Plant talked us into doing the seven day reset. And so this morning, today's day one. Today's day one. And this morning was some <laughs> amazing smoothie that I added some cacao nibs hemp seeds and almond butter into i wish i could have it every morning so i'm looking forward to my seven day reset except for you almost killed me this morning when i informed you <laughs> caffeine wasn't allowed during the seven day yes. cleanse which is easy for me because i'm a decaf but for- i am not a decaf and but i did make sure to ask you for the rules after i had my coffee <laughs> yeah. because i was anticipating that there was no caffeine allowed so maybe Tomorrow morning, I'll have a nice herbal tea. So Tea is allowed. Tea is allowed. Okay, I'll yes. have an herbal tea tomorrow morning. Well, I'm so excited to see you. We're going to do our peak and our pit. And I think maybe I'll start with my peak. Yeah, go for it. I might have two peaks, but I'll do it very quickly. So everyone knows that I own Greta Sloan. One of the things I love to do at Greta is to have events. And I really do not discriminate. It just has to be fun with interesting people who have a business that they're passionate about. So last week, we had a little pop-up with two companies from Dallas. Both are owned by women. One is a company called Modern Soul, run by Blair and Susie. They've been here several times, and they are a blast. We laugh so hard, we cannot stand it. And we do the same things every time. We have lunch from the Mediterranean Deli, and they have dinner at Tokyo Sushi, and they have drinks at the Merit. So we have this little routine with them. And so we decided to let in another group of fun girls who just started a company called the Mahjong Line. And they are from Dallas as well. And they're all friends. So the girls from the Mahjong Line came, two of them, Kate and Annie, and they brought their beautifully designed Mahjong sets. Okay, so this might sound kind of like an old lady game, but I just learned how to play Mahjong at the beginning of October. And so I was kind of obsessed and I wanted someone else to play with. So we had them come to Oklahoma City. They set up the whole store. We have table. The tables are still sitting there, but we have table. We had tables set up with all the different Mahjong sets. And then on Wednesday night, we did a very safe, socially distant, distanced mask wearing event where we had three sets of four people playing Mahjong and Kate and Annie taught us how to play. And it was a blast. I mean, we, we all came, we sat down, there was a little bit of shopping to begin with, but that really was not the highlight. We sat down and we learned how to play Mahjong. And I think everyone had a blast. I did have to kind of give everyone a little note not to take their masks off unless they were actively drinking and everyone did such a great job. But it just energized me and it made me excited to have events again, even if they're reimagined and they're on a smaller scale, being surrounded by interesting, outgoing, fun women is gives me a lot of energy. So we loved it. I've got my Mahjong set ready to play over the holidays and I've got to find a place in my house to set it up so I'm ready to go at any time. If you want to learn how to play Mahjong, go on to the MahjongLine.com and they have little links there. So my other peak was I finally got my Christmas tree up. Guess what? I ordered my Christmas tree from the Wells Family Christmas Tree Farm that Amy told me to order it from. This is the first time I've ever done this. I sent them an email. 
I said, I want a tree like Emmy's. Thank God they didn't have any left because 13 feet would have been a little tall for my house. Okay. So we went back and forth on Friday night. They delivered an 11 foot Fraser fir. Josh brought it. He, I helped him carry it in the place. I wanted it didn't work. He was so sweet. We carried it out. We carried it back in. He set it up. It's so beautiful. It's the tallest tree I've ever had. And I had to get all brand new lights for it, but it's decorated and ready to go. And it brings me such joy. So were they not the nicest? They could not have been nicer. Jesse emailed me back within minutes when I emailed him originally and said that you had gotten your tree and I wanted one similar. We went back and forth, back and forth. He was so helpful. It was, I do love to go and pick it out myself, but this year was going to be hard to do that. So it was the next best thing. And it's a beautiful tree. It's beautiful. So my pit, my pit is just the amount of work that's going to have to happen between now and December December 25th. <laughs> I leave this all to the last minute. This is so but this is so how I do everything, but I have no presents. I haven't really done anything to get ready for Christmas. I have no Christmas card. So I'm just a little stressed about what needs to happen between now and December 25th. Well, you inform me you send like 400. So I, I, when you told me you didn't have a Christmas card yet, I was a little concerned for you. And I didn't send one last year because we were in the middle of moving. And so every year I update my Excel spreadsheet with all my addresses and it was not updated last year. So now that takes several hours just to go through and update all the addresses. Yeah, that does. So... When you see me on December 25th, I usually take a nap on Christmas afternoon. That's like my Christmas present to myself. So I'm really looking forward to my Christmas afternoon nap. I love that. (laughs) In my Christmas PJs. You and I are so opposite. Like I've had all my presents bought. Like gift giving is one of my love languages that I show to people. Oh, I'm the worst. It's not mine. And so whenever I see something that I think somebody would like, I just buy it. And then knowing that I can give that to them for Christmas later, I think. I need to change my ways. You're going to motivate me. It's it's just more fun that way. And then there's not as much pressure. And I don't know, like all of the presents, my family, there's an intention behind it, I guess. Which, it's not just the PowerPoint presentation that my kids sent with links. I don't don't buy anything on Black Friday. I did buy two new mattresses. I'm not going to lie. Oh, well, that's different. That's different. But yeah, like even small business Saturday sales, I've usually already bought all my presents, but I do. I mean, I I buy stuff for myself. Let's let's be real. But um, (laughs) no. So Okay. So what was your peak and pit? My I'll do my pit first because it's really weird. We decided to plant our bulbs. So every we like to plant bulbs. I'm not so I'm not a gardening person. My yard it looks like crap unless I have somebody professionally come. Like we are just not great yard people. But planting bulbs is one thing that I do love. I get all my bulbs from this company called Color Blends. They're wholesale. They have a catalog. You get to pick like the color and the... I don't know. It's just so fun for me. How many bulbs did you order? So this year I've ordered... Ordered 200. 200. No, but last year I ordered 400. So in the old house or no, in the new house. house. So I don't do daffodil or sorry, I don't do tulips. I do daffodils and hyacinths and alliums. So alliums and daffodils come back. Hyacinths sometimes do, sometimes don't. So this year I ordered hyacinths and more daffodils. I love daffodils because I grew up out at Lake Aluma. There's a house out there called Daffodilia and they have thousands of daffodils. And so it's very like, it's a little nostalgic for me to see daffodils. But so on Sunday we go to plant 
the hyacinths and I'm holding the bulbs in my hand like without a glove, my hands start burning. What? Yes. Do they have chemicals on them? No. So there's this something called hyacinth hands. And it's like there is like the bulbs have some sort of allergen that gives you contact dermatitis. Mine, I'm already pretty allergic to a lot of plants. And so I'm not even kidding, Catherine. My hands were on fire. I had to run inside. I was trying to wash them. I got in the shower. I got in the bath. I took a Benadryl. Like I'm talking burning was sensation. It instantaneous? Like you picked up the first no, bulb it was, or was it after No, it was after like 20 minutes. So I've been handling them. And this didn't happen last year. I knew this was a thing. I didn't. I had no clue. So just FYI, wear your gloves. And wear apparently gloves. this is, I Googled it. Because of course I'm like, what is happening? I mean, it's like it was burning and it was burning on my wrists where my like uh, sweatshirt wasn't covered. I mean, it was burning and then it was burning on my face because I you touched my face. face. It was so crazy. How long did it take it for it to go away? Like an hour. Oh, Amy. And but so I, that was sorry. after cortisone cream and Benadryl and you know all that stuff. So, but the, did the kids help you? Did they have to no? Sleep they were problem? asleep. They were asleep. Okay. So. I do everything while they nap. That's so smart. My kids, they quit naps so early on. I don't even remember the nap days. I'm I'm cherishing them for sure. But so, yeah, like, uh, yeah, I was just burning. So that was my pit. (sighs) But um, and then my peak. So I co-chaired Boots and Ball Gowns last year for Infant Crisis. So for those who don't know about Infant Crisis, it is a nonprofit organization. Actually, Catherine's on the board and they provide basically the essentials for babies. I mean, or kids under four, um, if a family is in crisis, so they can come, no questions asked, diapers, formula, milk, groceries, clothing, like basically it's just, we've over the last, you know, however long we've researched or figured out that the first four years of a child's life are like the most important. And so it, it just, this organization is so important to me. Last year, I co-chaired their biggest event of the year. We raised almost $600,000. So we did it in February. Obviously, COVID happened in March. We were just like, what are we going to do about boots and ball gowns next year? So it's been up in the air. And last week, we finally nailed it down. And I am so relieved. Yeah. So it'll be May 15th at the Jones Assembly. Because we wanted a venue that was indoor-outdoor. And we wanted to make it so usually 1,200 people come. We want it maybe to be a little bit smaller, like 800. It sounds like, I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm only going off of what I've read and heard. It sounds like May, there might be herd immunity for things to sort of go back to normal. So I'm feeling very confident in our date. I'm confident in our venue because Jones is indoor outdoor. So if people are still uncomfortable, you can be outside. Um, and it's just going to be like, I'm just so relieved. I know you've been working on this for a long time and been stressing out for a long time. So I'm so happy that you got it figured. I knew you'd figure it out. I knew well, I was not, I was not worried about my your- co-chair is Natalie Simon. She's so smart. I'm, and then Jillian Neville, who works for ICS is so smart. I mean, I'm just really thankful for them too, because the three of us have really, yeah. I mean, Jillian, especially because she works there, they but the best staff, staff at, yes. at ICS. I they can. really do. So I'm just grateful that we have it nailed down. I mean, obviously, if I've learned anything in 2020, it's that things can change. But at least there's a plan. There's a venue who, I mean, obvi- the Jones is just such an amazing place, as we've talked about multiple times on this podcast. 
Their food's wonderful. Their drinks are fabulous. The people that there yes yes so um i don't know i just i feel like a big weight is lifted in the sense of like there's no question on if the event is happening there's no you know any of that so um yeah i've got to get my boots ordered i've got to get my boots ordered asap are you gonna do city boots yes i'm gonna do city boots and i think i'm gonna go navy with pink hearts (gasps) what do you think about that that i love that yeah that's or pink with navy May fifteenth. It's on my calendar. You know that um, I chaired the first boots. Yes, yes, with my friend Rhonda, and we had to. I think we had like two hundred and twenty people, and we had to at the. I mean, the last week we were calling all of our friends trying to fill tables. It was the very first year. We had no idea. I mean, we didn't know what to expect, and now you have had twelve hundred people last year. I mean, that's. I mean, the thing about this event specifically to me is that. Obviously, the cause is worthy, but it's also the most fun party. It's and that was our goal from the very beginning. What is it? It was going to be a fun party. Like, there was no auction. Yes, there the, was no silent auction. There was enough stuff to drag the whole party. Yes, it was about having fun and celebrating the babies and the work that ICS does. Hundred, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that's the thing. It's like, of course, it's important, but I just feel like, yeah, this is one of the few events where you go to, and it just it it doesn't feel selfish to just be having a good time. Right. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you were having a good time and supporting the babies. And so. you're wearing cowboy boots so you could dance all night. Your, Your feet, feet do never not hurt. hurt. That also is, I think makes a huge difference. I mean, I'm always on the dance floor, the, you know, the very last person, my husband's not on the dance floor, but I will be there. See, Jeff is a good dance partner. That's one See, of that's his so nice. great, great I mean, qualities. Jim has a lot of quality. <laughs> Dancing is not one of them. Yeah. So anyway, I'm just, I'm happy to have it nailed down for sure. Um, it's just, it's so important to me. And uh, last year was just such a success in 2020. And so I just want to make sure 2021 that we support as many families, feed as many babies. Like, you know what I mean? It's just especially it's, now the numbers. Yes. Are, staggering. I would say they're up at least 15 percent. Yeah. And we change the way that we do things. So now you can come a baby can come four times a year where they used to come four times or one times in their lifetime. Life. Yeah. Now they can come 16 times. Before yes. They turn four. So. Yeah. Emmy, great work. I'm so oh, glad thanks. That well, you're in charge. I just, I, f- I feel so grateful that we have this opportunity again. And it seems I'm hopeful for the future for the first time in like a minute. You know what I mean? Yes. So, um, not to be Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> There's something um, to look forward to. But I'm actually also looking forward to our guest today. Um, we have Lance McDaniel. He is an Emmy nominated director, writer, producer. He's been working on notable films such as Million Dollar Baby and was the executive director for the Dead Center Film Festival for many years. Most recently, he wrote, produced, and directed a local film called Finding Carlos. Um, And honestly, it's one of the most positive films I've seen in a long time. Please welcome Lance to Action City. Hi, this is Catherine, one of the hosts of Action City. I have two loves, fashion and food. So far, I've only figured out how to make one of them a career. Owning Greta Sloan, Oklahoma City's premier fashion destination, has been the highlight of my 20-plus years in the industry. It's a place where people and creativity come together. My team and I do the hard work of curating designers from all over the world and then narrowing down the best of their creations to make the shopping experience one of discovery and fun. We want our clients to eye their treasures from Greta Sloan as the favorite pieces in their closets and the ones that bring them the most joy to wear. 
We'll see you at the shop in Nichols Hills Plaza off 63rd and Western, or check us out on Instagram at Greta Sloan, G-R-E-T-T-A-S-L-O-A-N-E. Welcome, Lance. Emmy and I are here with Lance McDaniel, the producer of the newly released film Finding Carlos. Well, director and, and writer. And director, writer, yes. and producer yes. of all of the and above. And you were in it. Oh, yes. And you were in it. I did see the cameo of you in it, in it for sure. And the former executive director of the Dead Center Film Festival. Yes, and indeed. lots of credits other than that to your name. But we're so excited to have you here to talk Finding Carlos and talk what's after Dead Center and all things movie making and COVID. And we're just so excited to have you here. Yeah. So we're going to take it kind of back to the beginning. Great. And thank you for having me. I think your other guests are so exciting. I'm surprised I got Uh, the call, but thank you. Oh, Oh, are you kidding me? I was freaking out. I was. Well, (laughs) because I think that our, the reason why we started this podcast was just to find people who are doing like things in Oklahoma City that we think are exciting, that are pioneers, that are kind of, and I think right now this, this film renaissance is happening, if uh, you will, in Oklahoma City. And so when Catherine told me you were coming on, I'm like, I I think on our list of people, I was like, I I would you were up there. So oh, nice. I I was really excited. But so and you a c- shout out to my friend Lee Murphy who uh, made it all happen. Oh, I know. I love Lee. And who just had a birthday. Oh, I know. My God, we're getting so old. I can't think about it. <laughs> so you grew up in Alva. I grew up in Alva. Um, and um, I have two brothers, Mark and Randy, and then my mom and dad, Tom and Brenda. And we were there until 82. And when my brother Mark graduated from high school um, and went to OU, the rest of our family moved down here to Edmond. So. Okay, gotcha. Hey, wait, where is Alva near? Guyman, no. Where? Well, Alva's, Alva's on the way to Guyman, but Alva is directly northwest of here, three hours. So how old were you then when you moved 12. to Edmond? 12. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. So then you went to high school in Edmond. Went to junior high there and then went to high school at Purcell and um, Heritage Hall. Oh, and So okay. I graduated from Heritage Hall. Oh, you did? Uh-huh. I didn't know that. So you're a charger. I'm a charger. I love that. So in high school, what uh-huh. is that experience like for you? What were your interests? What was... Well, so I, our whole family, um, was encouraged to try everything. And so we did. And so both my brothers and I all played in the band, sang in the choir, played every sport, you know, tried out for everything. And so, and my parents were kind of insisting on it. They were like, well, try everything while you're a kid. And then when you're an adult, you can, you can select what you want to do, but right now try everything. And so, um, so that actually was a fun way to go through life. And, um, and I think that that has stuck with me as far as I tend to go to all the things that are going on in Oklahoma City versus staying at home. And I think that that came from growing up in Alva and Alva happened to have a lot of really good arts because they have a college there, Northwestern Oklahoma State University. So, um, there were a ton of piano teachers and dance teachers, you know, cause all the students that were going to major in music would then teach on the side. And so there was this wealth of creative opportunity in Alva. And so I think that that kind of led me, um, to appreciate the arts. And so when I moved down here to Oklahoma city where there's a lot of them, you know, that I just got more involved that way. Interesting. So you graduate and you go to Stanford. Yes. Which you and Catherine have that in common, although yes. she's business trees. school and you're undergrad. Can we say that? Yes. <laughs> well, and actually, my grandfather went to business school at Stanford and my dad grew up in Palo Alto. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so oh, that cool. whole Stanford has been like sort of in my family's background and then obviously Catherine and now you. So I love that connection. 
Brent, do favorite. you know Brent Johnson? Because he is a, a someone my age, and he and I graduated from Heritage Hall together, and both went to Stanford. Oh, Wait, they wow. took two people. They took two people. That year? Yeah, yeah. Out of like seventy-two. That's wow. So was academia always a big part of you and your family? Absolutely. So my mom was a teacher, and so grades were one hundred percent the most important thing. Even though we were doing a bunch of extracurriculars. So, um, so yeah. So we studied very hard, and um, and were basically expected to get straight A's. So, so what was your experience like at Stanford? The experience at Stanford, um, at first, it was probably similar. I think most people feel this way. At first, you feel like you don't belong because you're surrounded by all these people that seem so much more qualified. And so it took a while to feel like I belong to, I, I deserve to be there. Um, but then once you get past that, um, it was great. I found it very eye opening. Northern California is an eye opening place and a very kind of, you know, um, um, all things are introduced there. And so, um, I found Stanford to be totally awesome. Like I thought it was just the most fun, relaxed, super challenging academically, but the people didn't really take themselves as seriously as some of the East Coast schools. And so it was more of a t-shirt and shorts everywhere kind of environment. And I love that. So I was surprised. I was surprised by how small it was because I had actually didn't realize how small it was when I went. And, um, and it is, and it's like 2,500 per class. So it's a pretty small deal. Um, but, um, I loved it. The weather's great. The people are great. And for me, and it's funny, this movie Finding Carlos, I was talking to my old roommate from Stanford yesterday because it was his birthday. And I said, even though this feels like a very Oklahoma movie, it also reflects directly on my experience at Stanford, which was when you got there, they're like, hey, you need to understand the role of women, the role of, of black people, the role of, of Mexico. I was like, they, they did a very good job of opening my mind to a variety of cultures. And that really stuck with me. You know, that was, I was 18 years old. And so now, and what's fun about being in Oklahoma now is you have access to all those cultures. So not only are they here, but if I were in New York, they wouldn't hire me to direct the hip hop nutcracker. Right. I mean, like, like it wouldn't <laughs> be me. Would but here in Oklahoma City, I'm actually great friends with Hee Poos who created it. And so she did ask me, you know, and so I feel like Oklahoma, um, right now in Oklahoma City specifically, is just kind of at a perfect size for the artist to get to work with each other. And it's not just artists, it's business people, it's everything. It's a small enough community that when someone does something cool, it matters and it influences what other people are doing. So, yeah. I love that so much. I mean, I, I want to go back or yeah. we'll oh, talk course. about finding Carlos later oh, yeah, because, yeah, of course, of course, of course. oh my gosh, I, I, we watched it over the weekend and we're obsessed. Um, so from Stanford, mm-hmm. How do you get, do you go directly into the movie business? Like how, no, how that's is a great that? question. So what I um, moved to San Francisco and they didn't really have a film industry besides documentary and they had some documentary, uh, but documentary was not near as popular as it is now. And, um, and so I got into advertising and I worked on Taco Bell and Levi's and Clorox bleach advertising. And then, um, from there started building websites. And so we, we built the first Levi's website in 94. And then, um, and they were one of the first five commercial websites. And then I was in charge of Dockers and after the Dockers website. And after that went and did it full time for 15 years. So I was managing websites for 15 years, um, in San Francisco, London and New York, and then quit and went back to film school and then moved to LA. Um, went to NYU, went to a, a continued education program oh, at NYU. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And, um, and then got a call from Gray Fredrickson and, and moved to LA and worked for Gray Fredrickson, who's from here. 
Okay, so you're working for him. Well, yes. So I was, so I was a very successful internet consultant and quit that to work and make no money doing low budget horror films. And, um, were you the, when you were doing internet consulting? Yes. Were you, Sitting there thinking, God, I wish I was making movies. I wish yes. I was singing. What caused you to make that jump that, to go from making Catherine, money that's to making a great question. Because, no, no. Because, and I think all of us have, I think that I am not unique in it at all about this, but I had gotten to the place in my career where I had the best job I could imagine and it was, and it wasn't what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. you know, and I was head of creative for Europe for this internet company and they had sent me for a couple of weeks to Milan to review other companies to see if we were going to buy them. And so in theory, it was awesome, but I'm sitting there by myself and I'm like, oh my God, I'm never going to make a movie. Like 34 years old and I always wanted to make movies and it just didn't happen. And so I, I went back and told my boss, I'm like, Hey, I think I'm going to start my life over. And he was awesome. And he said, great. If you'll give me a year, I can move you back from London to New York and get you a job there, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, if you can be patient, you can do it very effectively in a way that you won't be running out of money immediately. And so I did. And so it took about a year to do that. And then, um, and then, um, Fritz Kirsch, who is married to Jennifer Smith, and he directed The Children of the Corn, the original one. Oh my God. I have never seen that. I would be terrified. Uh, sleepover. I was at a sleepover. Oh my God. No way. I was at a sleepover in like fifth grade and we watched it. Mm-hmm. And I had to make, I made my mom come sense. pick me up <laughs> because I was, I, I, I don't think I slept for a week. No. Nope. Yeah. Oh, it's scary. It's scary. And so he and Gray, um, basically Gray brought him back to start the program at OCCC, the film program. And so I worked for the two of them and Jennifer Smith and I are friends. Mm-hmm. And so she, that's how I got the call. Her husband called me and said, Hey, Gray Fredrickson's making a movie and I'll bet he'll hire you at least as a PA. And so, um, so I did. So I was a free intern, um, and, um, worked on a movie called Cloud Nine in LA. And so I was on two movies at LA, Cloud Nine and Million Dollar Baby. I was going to, I want to ask you yeah. about that. And, and this yeah, was yeah, as yeah. a, as and an intern. Awesome. This is where you were a 36 year old. I was intern. a 35 year old intern in a city where even the VPs are 25. You know, I mean, and I you mean, like, probably were never happier. I, I, well, I was happy. It was, it was interesting because I was such an outlier socially that. LA, LA was a very interesting place because it may be different now, but it seemed to be kind of a one industry town. And so the way you get jobs is at parties. It's socializing. And in the internet, it wasn't like that at all. I love a party and I'm hilarious. Uh, but, uh, but also I had friends from college, you know, so it wasn't, so even though I was 35, it wasn't like I just showed up and didn't know anybody. Right. So I had friends from college that were there that were my age, you know, and so, um, the, because I worked for Gray Fredrickson, it was a totally awesome experience because he's a really, really thoughtful person. So even in LA, when people are yelling at everybody, he was the sweetest person. And, and, um, and then Albert S. Reddy, who co-produced the movie, the first movie, Cloud Nine, was the one that produced Million Dollar Baby. And so they did an announcement and I'll be brief, but they did an announcement. And they said, Hey, Al is going to announce tomorrow that he is doing million dollar baby with Clint Eastwood. And if you, if you approach him about a job, you will be fired from this one. He doesn't want, he doesn't want all 130 of you coming up and asking for a job. So don't ask about it. 
I didn't even occur to me because I'm working for Gray. So then Al calls me and he said, Hey, Lance, I want you to work on my next movie. And I was like, Oh my God, that is so sweet. But no, because I actually work for your best friend. And I did not come to LA to leave just because I got a better offer. I was like, That's just, I was like, I know you probably think I'm a dumbass. Right. But that is not how I work. And I, and it's a bummer because I would love to work for the Clint Eastwood movie, but I'm a hard no on that. And he started laughing and he picked up the phone and called Gray Fredrickson. He goes, listen to this kid. I just offered him a job working for me on Million Dollar Baby. And he said, sorry, I'm working for Gray and I'm not working for anyone else. And Gray goes, oh, I love you, Lance. You know, it's, and then Gray goes, Lance, I'm making up work for you. Please go work for someone else. And so, But that was probably some of your Oklahoma upbringing, right? It was you, exactly that. It was dance with the one that brought you to the party. Exactly. Exactly. And the only reason I lived in L.A. is because Gray gave me a job. And so it wasn't. You know, it was it wasn't a confusing deal for me, but it was very eye opening for the two of them and allowed me to still be great friends with Gray today. You know, and so I think that but that's also being 34. Right. You were a little if I were 19, I might be like, oh, yeah, I want to sneak. Yeah. I mean, you know, so part of it was I was like, okay, well, what did I like in an assistant? Not tons of opinions telling me how great they were and show me their screenplay. You know, so what? So be the assistant that you wish you had. (laughs) And I did. And I showed up an hour early, got Diet Cokes every day, got donuts, all this stuff. And all the people my age made fun of me. And it worked out great. I got high. Yeah. So so uh, my experience in L.A. was very positive because of the people I worked for. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's kind of what I think the what I've heard about LA is if you have good people around you, it's it's the best city in the world. And I think it's hard to find those people sometimes for for some people moving to LA, it can be challenging if you don't already have like you had connections from Stanford, from here. Exactly. Um, all of that good stuff. So million dollar baby. Yes. So million dollar baby was so second movie I've ever worked on, without question, the best movie I've worked on and the best production. Because it's so quiet and efficient. And so that is the one thing that I kind of took with me is that no one yelled ever. And I didn't notice it that much until I started working on horror films where we're just yelling at people constantly because you're filming all night and people are smoking and blah, blah, blah. And so it was amazing how much control Clint Eastwood has over the set in a way that people just don't back talk, you know. And so everyone's ready every time it was it was an amazing experience that i was not ready for as far as like i didn't know what to take in and so looking back you're like oh my god no one ever spoke no i mean like every meal was fabulous and like shrimp on ice and stuff it was fabulous um but um hillary pardon me hillary swank was also totally awesome so she's a very down-to-earth woman and raised in a in a trailer park and we filmed at a trailer park uh and so um I think part of it was the movies were just really sweet. The first was Burt Reynolds and he's nice. And then the second one was Hillary Swank and Morgan Freeman and they're super nice. Yeah. You know, so it wasn't like I was working on a Marvel movie where there might be 11 massive egos that are all making $50 million. You know, like Hillary Swank was thrilled to be working with Clint Eastwood. Right. You know, and showed up to work every day acting like that. And so were the rest of us. And so it was, it was very, it, it felt like no one was famous because no one's as famous as Clint Eastwood. <laughs> and what a great place to start. Not everybody going into the movie industry starts on those two films. Oh my God. No, working with that uh, caliber of talent. totally. Well, totally. And then we, and then I moved back here right after million dollar baby to do, cla- um, to do the hunt. And we did. Is f- that why you moved back to Oklahoma city? <clears throat> yes. Okay. And so gray said, Hey, we're going to move and do four movies in Oklahoma city. And, and I had you said, li- are you crazy? Well, and I had lived here in a while and I was like, oh my gosh, that's actually great. You know, because I hadn't been with my family and 
and oh, sorry, <clears throat> we're very, very close, but I had not lived there for 15, 16 years. So I was a two week a year kind of guy. And, um, and I was, what like, year was this? nine 2005 okay so in 2005 2004 so yeah yeah so so and and it wasn't as fabulous as it is now mm-hmm. but being with my family was amazing and so it was really like i lived in one of my brother's rental houses you know and so um very quickly we became kind of a posse that grew into this posse of 12 that we are now and uh but that really started 15 years ago because you know i i was gone you know and so um um coming back to oklahoma I think is the best decision I've ever made in my life. I di- I told you I did a deep dive of your Instagram because I love. I mean, it was awesome. <laughs> but um, the one of the biggest takeaways I got was yeah that you are very connected to your family. I saw you're at like all your nieces and nephews yeah. games. Like you, it just the I love seeing that, and so I could tell I was like family must be very important to him. And I wondered if that was part of your decision making in coming back. That was the biggest reason you know so gray gave me the opportunity of a job but i'm like wow this is a great chance to go home and i and i didn't think i would come home when i moved to san francisco i thought i'd be there for life yeah i think that's what a lot of people on this podcast have in common including (laughs) Catherine and i is like i i got to tcu and then went to dallas and thought i was never going to leave dallas and yeah she went to san francisco and thought maybe she might never come back and we all did so did you have the intention of staying so when he said come work on the hunt did you say i'll go for you know to make these four movies and then i'll move back that's exactly right Catherine. so i the first one i didn't move here the first one i just worked on and stayed here lived with your parents right back um, where you started or no my brother oh in the red house house, yes (laughs) and um and after that they're like we're gonna do four here why are you living in la and so I'm like, you're right. This is stupid. I should move home. And so it was, it was, um, um, it wasn't totally, I mean, like it was a conscious decision, obviously to move back, but it all just kind of fell in place. And it's amazing how great of a decision that was to move back, you know, and I would put that up there with going to Stanford as far as like life decisions I made moving back to Oklahoma was the perfect move at the right time for me, you know, at the perfect time. And, um, it took me, I was doing low budget horror films for the first five or six years and, um, and so it's kind of hard to meet people because we'd work nights. And so, and so when I first got back here, I kind of had such a weird job that I wasn't really as integrated into Oklahoma City. And then once I started working for Dead Center, that I was right in the middle of it, you know. I Dead Center is so interesting to me. Like, but tell me kind of like how how that job came about for you, what Dead Center means to you. Yeah. I know while you were there, it, the growth of that film festival was immense. Yes. Well, well, so thank you. And um, so I took over in year 10. Okay. And so um, it, it was started by Jason and Justin Floyd. And then Melissa Scarabucci and Kaki Porch took it over in year three. And they ran it until year 10. And I met them in 2005 when I came back. I went to the festival, loved it. And so I started volunteering for Melissa. So I was her volunteer for, you know, seven years six years and then um and then when they stepped down i was really just worried that it would go away and so i applied for the job because i'm like oh my god this is the greatest thing ever and um and i think i think they had already created something super duper special you know so like i like i know a lot of people give me credit for everything dead center and the fact is i took over in year 10 and it was an award-winning world-class festival what i think i did was focused on growth so sheer number growth, we went from like 10 to 40,000 people and corporate growth. 
And that was a, a, the first 10 years, I don't think they could have been a, and, and stayed as alternative as they were. And, but once after 10 years, it's like, okay, well, it would benefit me as a filmmaker more if more people knew about Dead Set. You know, so being a fringe alternative deal doesn't really help the filmmakers as much because they want people that can invest in their next movie seeing, you know, and so, uh, so <clears throat> we, um, so we had a lot of good luck growing it, but partially Oklahoma City grew in that same time. Yeah. You that's know, true. so I mean, the food truck showed up, the thunder shows up. I mean, so many awesome things happened that yes, Dead Center's growth was awesome, but it directly mirrored the growth of downtown, the growth of the plaza and all that, you know, so, I, I think I did a really good job, but I think that a lot of the circumstances of what makes Dead Sitter great is what makes Oklahoma City great, you know, and that like that, that it was at the last 10 years, all the work that they were doing with maps and all of that stuff is now paying off, you know, so we've now benefited from, oh, wow, now there are great streets and parks and all that stuff. So. Well, yeah. and the having started dead center 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, really. So when I moved back to 04, you moved back in 05, there was really not much happening in Oklahoma city. And I can remember thinking dead center was so cool. And that totally. it, it in a way gave us credibility as a city that maybe we didn't have, especially in that art form, but that having that not just pop up in let's say 2005, right. yeah. six and having that <clears throat> groundwork laid for 10 years exactly. prior to that dead center is one of the things when you list out the thunder and the food trucks and maps it's on the list that helped us grow to where we are now. I mean, it's, I think one of the things that, that has also allowed the film industry to begin to really, I don't know if the word is explode here, yeah. but no, definitely but I, resurgence. Right. It is. I mean, a resurgence, if yeah. that groundwork hadn't been laid 20 years ago, we wouldn't be where we are now in the film industry. And it, Made Oklahoma City what it is. Yeah, I mean, no, I, no, I think you're exactly right. And the film industry now is going through a huge boom, and the and the different studios that are opening up, and and Rachel and Matt would be a wonder wonderful guest oh, for you. Yes. They're on our list. <laughs> yeah, they're they're fabulous. They're coming soon. <laughs> but um, but I do think Dead Center played a big role in that because it got people acknowledging film as an art form, and it got you know, so it wasn't just khaki and me. It was there's 400 filmmakers. And people at UConn and people here and people there. And so I think that our festival helped draw attention to the fact that there's a lot of people doing this. Um, and then the rebate program is really why the, why the, um, industry grew because all these out of town productions can get a 33% rebate, um, right. in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so that, that is a, a huge driver. And then, um, getting people for me, the big, the, the next step that Oklahoma needed to take in the film industry was investing in bigger type of deals. And that's what's so cool about Matt and Rachel's, um, about the, um, about Prairie Surf, Prairie Surf, Prairie Media. Surf yeah, yeah, Media. Thank you. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> about Prairie Surf is they're just, they're, they're doing it at a very different financial <clears throat> level than a lot of other filmmakers. And that's great for the industry because you, you, you can't rely on all low budget films and create an industry because you need you need big budgets that are taking six months to film that are you need tv shows that are employing people for a year for not just years. a month you, you so. need residents of oklahoma city to be able to work in the industry 12 months a year 365 right. days a year where they don't just work on a film stop work at starbucks work at a, they they need to be employed constantly and I think that's what they're going to bring to Oklahoma City. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. The, the workforce jobs. development. Yeah, exactly. Full-time job equivalents is, is what the goal is. And um, <clears throat> um, I do think it it has been exciting to see how the growth, the kind of natural growth of it, you know, just the movies coming and all of that. But it's been really exciting to see how the legislature and the and the government has changed their tune because it used to be very 
anti-film and anti the tax credits and anti this. And now I think they've shifted to we're another small business opportunity for Oklahoma or another business opportunity, another sector. And, um, and I think that they, they realize we have to diversify from energy. You know, we have to have multiple. And so I'm very happy that Governor Stitt and Lieutenant Governor, all them actually treat it like a real industry and, and focus on it that way with workforce development. And I think that that is the best change since I've been here, um, working at them. Well, we, okay. So right before COVID happened, I had a movie. I can't remember what the name of the movie is now, but they came and they used Greta Sloan as a, as a location, right? Uh So they scouted Greta. They came and used the location. I was up to like four in the morning. I had no idea. I knew nothing about the film industry. And most of the people I talked to actually lived in Oklahoma city and worked in the film industry. And then the star of the movie was Leslie Uggam. Who then this weekend on CBS Sunday morning, they did a whole profile on Leslie Uggam on CBS oh, cool. Sunday morning. And I was like, wait a minute. She was like, Greta, but I didn't knew nothing about the film industry. And I was so impressed with how professional it was right there in the town that I grew up in. That's I was cool. amazed. Yeah. No, it is professional. And a lot of the people have been working for 15 years, you know, and so, and, and if you're doing low budget, that could be three or four movies a year. So, so people have worked on a lot of productions and, um, and it's just been great to see because when we first started 15 years ago, there was not enough people to do it. So you would bring in a lot of people from LA and now you really don't have to bring in anybody, which is awesome. Well, I want to touch on, so dead center has this whole education portion did like the, oh, yes. where they go into high schools uh-huh. and colleges and they educate on film and things like that. So what did that come about while you were there? Yes. So dead center would go into schools forever. So when Kaki and Melissa were writing it with Kim Haywood, um, they would go and speak like they would, they had the same attitude that I did, which is anyone that'll let us speak, let's go speak to them. And that at least maybe one person there will like it. That's great. And so what we did, um, when I started, and it was kind of to try to get corporate sponsors, it was like, well, we need to codify what we're doing a little bit better because if we just do one thing here and one thing there, we can't sell a program. And so we started a program, which was we'll go to 30 high schools in the fall and we'll do these free film seminars. And um, and I think we started probably 15 schools the first year, but then we went to 30 pretty quickly and did that for for eight years. So, yes, so we did start that program, but it wasn't that they weren't doing education before. It was that I felt like in order to go to Sonic and say, I'd like for you to sponsor our education program. Well, what does that mean? What that means is we're going to these schools at this time frame, you know, so it's just adding, adding something so you can apply for a grant basically. And so, um, and it really took off. And what we found out very quickly was that, um, it wasn't that we were able to teach kids how to make movies. It's that we were able to teach kids to stand up and talk in class. And oh. I, and it never would have occurred to me because I never stopped talking in class, you know, <laughs> you know, and so, and the first year, multiple teachers, and I think it was Fran Barton at McGinnis that kept bringing me back. And I was like, Hey, I can't get funding to go to all private schools. So, and she was like, well, come back and I'll tell you why. And so I did a class and it was after school. And afterwards she goes, okay, I've never heard any of those guys speak in class. They're all part of the, you know, they all have learning disabilities and they will not raise their hand and speak up because they don't want to be wrong. And what your program does that you're not paying attention to is kids can stand up and say whatever they want about a horror film or whatever. And so everyone can do it. Wow. And, and of course I wasn't thinking that. And so it's just interesting that feedback from the teachers helped turn that into a program that I think actually is cool. So then our goal was like, okay, obviously we're not going to teach these people how to make movies. Let's use movies to teach them how to get better, different skills like standing up and, you know, talking correctly and coming up with creative ideas. Um, and then 
for filmmakers, we added Dead Center University. So, so that came out of that, which was at the festival. Since we changed the program to be less film focused, we're like, well, tell us who the filmmaker is in your class and we'll take one per school and they could come to our festival for free. And so we would have 60 kids from rural Oklahoma come to the festival for Dead Center University. And that was to get those kids that we identified as potential filmmakers meeting other people like them. Did they go? Did any of those kids go on and make films that were later in Dead totally? Center? Yeah, yes. I mean, in my mind, all of them, but I think probably two. <laughs> uh, but yeah, enough that we got yes that I got to put that in a grant, and it was like here's a person that actually won, I think he won an award at Dead Center oh. and had heard about us through the high school program. It was rural and stuff, and so yes, so there has been some of that that's been cool. That's amazing. So what? So you stepped down from Dead Center in June? Yes. So what? What led to you to that decision? Like, I can't imagine it was easy for you. Well, well, uh, or maybe uh, it was. I don't know. Well, no, 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 no. No, I think you're exactly right. But um, what made it easier is I had run a nonprofit for ten years that was twenty years old, and I felt like I mean I I could do this for the rest of my life. And then we become like every other nonprofit, whereas <laughs> where there's no turnover, and. I just believe that dead center, and it's not that I'm just all altruistic, but there, there's a personal reason for it as well. But I felt like Alex Picard Davis shouldn't have to be 50 to run dead center. And she had been there eight years and she's super smart and she's more technical than me and she kicks ass and she, and people, we go to these national conventions and they love her. And so I'm like, okay, like here locally, I'm great. Alex has such a good job nationally with what Dudsetter is doing that I'm like, she's a perfect person for it. And, um, and so she and I talked about it a year and a half before. And I was like, so if you're, if you want my job, let's start preparing for that. And so she joined the national board of the film festival Alliance. And I was like, you need to figure out what you can do different than me because you're not going to be the Friday paper all star. Cause I went to her show. That's just, you know, I'm already there, but what you can do is something else. And so, so partially I felt like dead center needed new blood and someone else, someone new to lead them. So that was half of it. And the other thing was I was, I felt like I had done as much as I wanted to do in those 10 years. And I didn't need to do another 10 years to, to get fulfillment out of that. Yeah. So I was not sure what I was going to do. So that was the hard part and even harder for other people. Because everyone's like, so you're quitting a job you're good at and you don't have a job, you know, and so it did say it, it seemed disconcerting to a lot of people. And then COVID happened and I looked like the dumbest guy on earth <laughs> that you, I left. You had done it before when you quit the Internet consulting job. To well, do another well, job. well, you, well you exactly. Figured it out. <clears throat> exactly, Catherine. And yeah. the and um, you will never be able to figure out what's next unless you take that step. You know, and so so I had um, I had taken a similar step. You're right back then. And um this has been so easy, you know, and it's not that I have everything figured out, but I did, I did what I knew in my heart was right, which is to leave dead center and allow Alex to run it and allow them to try new things because I'm, I'm, I'm great, but I'm such a strong personality that it was never going to be possible for other people to have as strong of an influence while I was there, you know, cause they're like, Oh, maybe you can stay on the board. It's like, no, let her run it. What, like we don't it's need me, you know? So, um, it was scary, but what was amazing, and, and right when I um, I got a job offer right when I was leaving, and it was not what I wanted, and I turned it down, and one week later, I got asked to do Fighting Carlos by two different people, and it's because <clears throat> I decided to figure, take the time to figure out what, sh- what I should be doing instead of rushing into the next thing. That's amazing. 
I, I'm just smiling because I feel like there's so many instances in and yeah, nonprofits or even companies where I see a figurehead that, like you said, like you have a strong personality, you have a point of view, and they decide not to leave. And it it does sometimes not hurt that company or nonprofit, but yeah, it definitely doesn't allow for growth if you felt like you were like, I've done everything I can. I just, I don't know. I think that that takes a lot of courage. And well, thank, well, thank you. And, and part of it was I I quit internet consulting to make movies. And then I ended up at Dead Center for a decade, you know, you know, yeah. so, so going back. So what made it a little easier is I was going back to what I actually enjoy the most, which is making movies. And so, so, so that did make yeah. it a little easier to leave because I'm like, okay, well, I'm going because I want to do something that I actually enjoy more. Yeah, so, so when, so finding Carlos yeah, let's talk found about you, how, so you, <clears throat> who came to you with finding Carlos? Great. How did it resonate with you? Why'd you say yes? Yes. Okay. So there are two, it, 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 it's, Two different sources. One, he Poos, who created the hip hop nutcracker with Race Dance Company, and she founded Race Dance. Company. Is she in the movie? She is in the movie. She is she's the Asian the- girl uh, that she's a, the Asian girl that talks to him. Okay, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, I, yeah. So yeah, she's yes. she created the hip hop nutcracker eight years ago, and her version was change it from Clara to Carlos, mm-hmm. and he meets his dad for the first time, and they go around the nutcracker experience. So that was, so that was already there. And so she came over and said, Lance, we, and oh, the way they did it is they would go into public high schools, lead a semester long class at these different schools. And then the program for the, you know, the final program of the semester was a hip hop nutcracker and all the different schools were the different dances. And so she said, we can't go into schools because of COVID. And would you consider doing a movie? And I'm like, I'm in no matter what. And at the time, we're like, well, because I didn't know we'd have funding. So I'm like, even if it's just me with a camera, we are doing a movie about this because I love your dancers. I love everything. Separately, uh, a guy named Heath Hayes, who works for the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health, came to me and he said, hey, so two years ago, you did a movie, Homecoming Trilogy, which I did. And it was about a woman getting out of prison and succumbing to her meth addiction and dying. And it was also told through dance. And at the time, and he and I are good friends, but so he's like, I really liked the way that when you made that movie in Alva as a community art project, it got the whole town talking about addiction because everyone that came to the theater was like, why did you tell the story? And I'm like, well, there's a prison in our town that yeah. no one talks about. And yeah. it's a drug prison. You know, I was like, I was like, and, and a lot of people I knew grew up with had problems. And so, um, I felt, yeah, so I felt, so I felt really good about doing it, but that really led to this. So he said, well, there's, there are some funding. There's some funding that has been, um, freed up because of COVID to get people to try to decrease the stigma around addiction and mental health. And I think you should apply for a grant. For your film. And I'm like, okay. And so, um, and I applied every other person that applied, applied to start a commission. So every start person that applied what's that to study something. Uh-huh. And so we were the only grant application that was, you give us money in September and we will give you a movie in theaters by December. Wow. And, um, and, and so somebody's going to actually see as opposed to the commission who's going to well, see. Well, exactly. Report. And, and, um, and so the timing was perfect and they bought it, you know, and so and then it ended up being paid for by a variety of advocate groups as well. Is um, that at the end? Those were the groups. Those are the groups. Okay, that paid for it. That's yeah. amazing. Well, 
there's so many questions I have about yeah. the film just because there are so many facets of it. I mean, there's a racial facet, there's the addiction facet, the obviously the mental health, there's a family facet. I mean, that's kind of what, what my takeaway from it was, was kind of like, let's celebrate diversity. Let's celebrate, you know, mental health. Right. Let's like, it just felt a little bit more of a celebration than like, oh, you're struggling with this or you feel, you know what I mean? Right. No. And, and that was the goal. And so part of it was, you know, so um, we're taking this hip hop dance movie and this mental health deal, but it wasn't really that far off because the kid in the hip hop nutcracker, the kid is meeting his father for the first time. Like, like it allowed yeah. the story, the story allowed us to do kind of the, it was surprising that it worked so well in my mind because it did all come together very well. And I think a lot of that is the tone. Everyone that got involved was nervous because of, because of COVID. Mm. And so we would go meet with all these dance groups and then once, and they, we would, you know, kind of sell it as the hip hop nutcracker. And then when we go and tell, show them the script and they're like, Oh, okay. Wow. Well, we're actually doing a lot about mental health and addiction in our tribe or in our group or whatever. And so, um, it really, the tone on set was exactly that positive because we all felt like we were doing something that mattered, you know, and we all felt so grateful to have the opportunity during the pandemic to do it, you know, and so, so it was, um, it was the most fun I've ever had working on a movie, even though it was weird because, you know, we're face masks the whole time. We're getting tested twice a week, you know, and so there was, there was weird stuff, but it was so much joy because everyone was felt like, okay, we're, we're going to, we're trying to do something great. You know, and it'll either work or it won't, but we're trying to do something great. We're trying to be positive and say, all of us are having problems, but there are resources. And I think that that was kind of the opposite of the message of the, of the homecoming trilogy, which was here's a girl that did not get the resources she needed and therefore succumbed to her addiction. And the story of Carlos is, well, what happens when it does work? Yeah. What happens when you do find those resources? And so everything in there, including the, the tablets that they give him, everything in there is actually real. Um, and, and is usually, and a lot of them are being test, tested in different cities, but like having a counselor go and talk to the kid instead of a cop happens in Stillwater and Grand and Grand Lake and their pilot programs where they have a trained therapist go or a counselor drive around with the cops. And if it's a youth, then they have the counselor go first instead of the police. So they try to deescalate it. And so, so that character, Oh yeah. So a lot of it is like it's best case scenario, but, but they do actually exist in real life. So you basically took like real mental health practices and that's what was based in what that was. Well, exactly. So, yeah. so we interviewed 12 mental health groups and that's, you know, from bipolar to depression to everything. And, um, all of them had a very different, you know, focus and take. And what we tried to do is kind of synthesize that into, um, something that we could, you know, include in the movie. And I think that we did a nice job of that. Like, I think that, um, um, you know, it's hard to talk about mental health and not just sound boring, you know, or whatever. And so I feel like, um, we didn't push it so far, you know, that he does, he never goes too out of control. Um, but far enough to, to realize that, Hey, all of us have struggles and that kid is struggling and those different people along the way are helping him solve his problems. And it's was what I loved about it is all of the different cultures that you showed that mental health is not specific to one race or to one culture that it spans all of us as human beings. And I, I loved how people of different races influenced him. I mean, he's biracial right? and 
he came in contact through going out and seeing the auditions of all the different right. dance troops with all these different cultures that really are native to Oklahoma, that we all have all of these in Oklahoma and, and really even in Oklahoma City. And I, I enjoyed seeing him interact with all different kinds of people. And that at the end, they all had a hand in his success. And exactly, no, exactly. And and, well, thank you. And it was, and um, when he and I were talking about when she when she asked me to do it, I'm like, sure. I was like, well, if we're not going into high schools, then we're not going to make it about a bunch of kids. And so, how do you feel about us just doing different cultures of dance groups? So we came pretty quickly to the idea of how we would expand it. Um, and um, but the challenges were it was fascinating. Um, so for writing the, the Native American portion of the script, we couldn't use specific names because they're all different per tribe. Mm-hmm. We couldn't go out and hire actors to play the three roles because you couldn't hire a Cherokee guy and a Chickasaw guy if the dancers are, you know, seminal. And so basically we had to wait until we find the dance group. And then that the people in that scene are all in the same immediate family and every one of them. Really? Yeah, they so were the, the two break dancers oh. are brothers. Oh. And then those are their kids. Really? Oh okay. Gosh. Well, they were really good actors for not. They were, mm-hmm. Yeah. Thought, yeah. So. They came really natural, especially D'Angelo, the son. I mean, yeah, yeah. he would. Yeah. Cause he had some speaking lines. Yeah. Um, I think also what I love too, is that you have the nostalgia of the nutcracker music. Yes. yes. And I mean, unfortunately, like we just found out you'll be able to maybe stream the nutcracker, but like, we won't get to go this year. And I don't know. For me, that felt really, um, it put me at ease. You know, it's like one of those things where you're watching something. Familiar. Yeah, it, it was gave familiar. You a sense of peace. Yeah, like, absolutely. Oh, I know this. Oh, of course. When the, you know, when the Russian dancers come out or when the Asian yeah. dancers come out, it made sense along the way with the, I can't remember what song was playing when the Native American dancers were dancing. Well, it's the Arabian. Yeah, Arabian. Yeah. Arabian. Okay, I, couldn't, I can't remember. Well, I can't remember. and I loved for the, and I don't want to spoil for mm-hmm. people who haven't seen, but the Asian dance when she says, I'm Korean, mm-hmm. but people mm-hmm. tell me I'm Chinese or, you know, and I, and then during that dance, how there was an, um, a dancer from India. They were always like a Vietnamese, Korean, Chinese. Like the, it was so cool how you could tell the difference in their cultures right. through that dance, but yet they were all dancing together. I don't know. I just was like, it, it, the whole movie to me made so much sense. And I think it's been a while since I've watched something and I've been like, huh, like this just all makes sense to me. And it all is positive. Right. Like well, it felt very uplifting. Well, thank you. And a lot of and what's interesting is that that scene came exactly from a conversation that he and I had because she, when, um, Remember when COVID first came out yeah. and they were calling oh, it the Chinese yes. flu? Well, we, she was like, I, at UCO, I'm the coolest woman on campus. You know, I run the de- dances and all that stuff. And I go to a grocery store and get yelled at in Edmond as, as saying Chinaman and all this stuff. And so she was, we happened to be meeting and she had just had this very bad experience Aww. about being yelled at for being Chinese when she's not. And I'm like, well, Great. Put it Let's in put the it in the movie. movie. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, I think that's so, so smart. Also, like, relevant. Um, but um, to the Nutcracker point, though, and, and Melissa was the best about this because, you know, Melissa Scaramucci and I wrote it together and she and he and I produced it and he's producing of it. Well, she did tons of stuff, but there are 70 dancers and 12 choreographers that she worked with. You know, so she had a huge job and they were all rehearsing while we were filming the other stuff. Wow. You know, so there was a lot going on. But we wanted, we thought it was very important to make the point that this is not excluding the nutcracker or excluding ballet this is just an addition to you know and um um 
I think it is amazing that Oklahoma City has such a strong ballet and has a gorgeous nutcracker that is world class, as good as anywhere you could see it. And so this is not so we put Robert Mills in yes, mm-hmm, in the movie that. and we filmed at the ballet and that was very intentional because we did not want anyone to think that like, oh, the the there's something wrong with the actual nutcracker. There's nothing wrong with it. We're just doing a different interpretation of it, you know. And so uh, so we were thrilled to be able to to film inside the ballet to to create that connection because they are they do the amazing job with their nutcracker and we don't want to take away from that at all well my children recognized the building they said mom wait that's the ballet maybe we can walk there from our house and they they loved being able to see all of the places in oklahoma city that they yeah. recognize and that was the one that they really called out they that building is so iconic and yeah. it's so wonderful now that oklahoma oh, city ballet amazing. has been able to occupy that space but i i loved seeing a movie filmed in our city. Yes. All the different spaces that you used and the little teeny tiny grocery store they hung out in front of Plaza, the Plaza District. <laughs> yeah. And of course we all know that little grocery store. And it's probably been there since before the revitalization. Yeah. It's you know probably been there since my grandmother lived down there. But I, it was just it made me so happy to see how this city has grown. You could not have filmed this movie Oh, for sure. Ago. You wouldn't have had the same scenes that you had. Well, for sure. We also had, you know, so we had um, 13 murals that were yeah, in it. And yes. so we paid all those muralists and also donated to the, um, to the Oklahoma mural syndicate that Chris um, Canaley does. I was going to say the fact list. that Chris Canaley's mural was like the first <sighs> scene. I, it just made me feel home. You know what I mean? It made me feel very proud. Well, me, well, me too. And, and we also, one of the primary goals was to provide jobs, you know, so part of it with he was, hey, my dancers aren't getting paid. So if they could do a movie, we could pay them to dance. Same with choreographers. And so we actually didn't really hire many film actors. We hired theater and dancers. And that was purposeful because that's who wasn't working. And um, and so once we're like, oh, well, I wanted to include all the, you know, because I, I knew we were going to be in that bridge. I'm like, well, if we're paying everyone else, we probably need to pay the visual artists yeah. who also aren't getting And so we went and met with him before the production and said, hey, we want to donate to you and we want to pay everybody that does it and he was of course thrilled <laughs> you know yeah. and it's like it's not enough i think we gave everyone a hundred bucks but it's like okay that's not enough but it's something because we would acknowledge that our movie is beautiful because your art is in it it know? also sets the precedent for this is how it works in the real film industry you use a song you use an image right. you use an exactly you know, and an actor it's all the same it's all creative work that's being portrayed in a film and so yeah i think i i agree i think that that was really beautiful and i love seeing just downtown and yeah like plaza i mean all the different parts of the city that felt familiar it was also like Again, while we were watching, just very comforting, mm-hmm. but also it made me feel excited to see that something this creative came out of our city because it's I just it, Oklahoma City is expanding so much. And well, it's, exactly, well, I, how beautiful it is! I yeah. mean, like the oh. the movie looks good because Oklahoma City looks good. You yeah, know? and that was the sure. scene where they're standing out in front of uh, Carlos's house or his dad's house, and you look in the background, and there's the Devon Tower, just kind of a little spike in uh-huh. the background. Uh-huh. Uh, it, that you wouldn't have had that image 15 oh, years exactly. ago either. That was when we filmed favorite. at the class and motel. I saw oh, that. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. All the, all the places now that you're mentioning it, I'm like, yeah, I recognize like, and, um, Baker Hughes, you know, which is now mm-hmm. OSU. Oh, is yes. that, were those all the inside shots? Yes, uh-huh. Okay. I've never been in that building, but oh, I've been cool. dying to go. Okay. So if you want to go in that building, watch the movie. Cause you'll get to see, I, I was well, like, exactly. where is that? Well, and the reason we did that, cause you know, instead of the civic center, was so because if you film at Baker Hughes, 
looking towards the city, you have the entire sky, you know, mm-hmm. uh, skyline in the background. And there's so much light and coming in. Whereas if we filmed outside the Civic Center, it wouldn't have, you know, yeah. so inside, obviously it's fabulous, but on the outside. So that's why we used an oil, <laughs> an energy company as our performing arts center, just because it allowed us to show the whole city. I loved it. Well, so we are probably close to our final question, okay. I think. But before we ask that, Oklahoma City in 10 years, kind of what do you see as far as the landscape for film, for yourself, for the city, all of those? Um, I, based on the 15 years I've been here, I think that, um, I think that there's going to be, there's going to continue to be momentum to make Oklahoma City more livable and more livable for more people. Like, I think that what is, I think the last, 20 years we've developed this awesome downtown and thunder and everything. And so it seems like it's for everybody, but there are people who don't have the money to go to thunder games, you know? And, and so I think what this last, this, the, what they're doing now with maps with mental health and all that stuff, I think they're trying to, they're, they're taking the correct steps to try to make sure that all boats rise together, you know? And I, and I believe that, um, I think as we're a small enough community and state that we can take care of everybody. And so I believe that the good fortune that we have all experienced over the last 15 years and the growth and all of that, I see it in the next 10 years expanding into ways that actually help homeless people and everyone else, you know? So, so I, I think that the, the momentum is so good and that convention center is gorgeous, you know? So all that stuff, once you have those big things in place, like the pandemic will end and there will be conventions and there will be films and all that other stuff. Um, but so that infrastructure, and that's why Matt and Rachel are so important is because that infrastructure is there so that when people do make movies, then We're now look, they'll make them here. So I think that film, I think that's both the studios, both green pastors out in Spencer and the um, Prairie surf downtown are going to have a huge, Huge role to play in kind of taking our film industry to the next level financially with bigger movies and longer term employment. And then um, I think Oklahoma City is just going to continue to stay great, but but do it in a way that includes more people that are currently included. I love that. What's next for you? Yes. Um, hopefully, finding Carlos the series. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I've got a lot of backstory with Branjay, and uh, but so uh, my hope is to do another one. You know, and so this happened. So quickly, you know, I mean, like we were, we were, we were writing it two weeks after I left Ed Center. So that happened very quickly. Um, and so over December, we're going to figure out if we can get it out more widely. And so the one thing we chose not to include any COVID paraphernalia on camera because we're like, well, we want this to play for Christmas every year, you know? And so, um, and so my hope is that we, that we have some success with this. And if we could do another one for next year, that would be my ideal to do another story like finding Carlos with similar groups of people. I love that. Well, do you want to ask? We're looking forward to that. Yeah. Like really though. Um, Do you want to ask the final question? Well, (sighs) okay. So let's use your roommate from Stanford comes to Oklahoma city for a visit. Okay. You pick them up at the airport. Where do you go first? What's your day look like in Oklahoma city? So my day in Oklahoma City, I would definitely go to Scissortail Park first. I would say that that for me, and I, I I have a five mile loop from my house through Scissortail Park that I try to do a few days a week. So you're um, gonna, you're going to make this person go on this five mile loop with you? <laughs> well, they're a friend of mine. Yes. Sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> put away your sneakers. <laughs> but so I, I think that I'm probably most proud of the park. Most proud that we voted to make a park. I mean, like just the, and you go there and it's naturally diverse every single time. You're like awesome. Um, so I would go to the Scissortail. 
park. Um, the Jones Assembly, I just love more than life itself. It's I just, just saw so you there great. on Friday. Exactly. We it, yeah. it was, and I go there well, because awesome. I feel safe there. We're outside, mm-hmm. you know, and I just love them. And so um, Jones Assembly would definitely be there. And then I'd go to the Paseo, you know, so Frida and um, Oso and Picasso, um, Kent Stephen Myers um, moved next, not next door to me, but three doors down right before the pandemic. And then we got quarantined together. So it's been glorious because he's hilarious and awesome. And his restaurants are just great. You know, so Frida. Oso was in the movie. Yeah. Oso's mm-hmm. exactly. Oso's yeah. Favorite tacos. Yep, favorite tacos. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But, uh, but the, I'd probably take him to the plaza. I mean, it's, it, it is hard to pick because it's you're like, so oh, well, would I go to parlor or where I, you know, I mean, like there's so many different things, but for me, the Paseo, um, the Jones assembly and the park downtown are probably my three. I would also then at night go to factory obscura. Like I think what they do is just so great for Oklahoma city. It's unbelievable. Oh yeah. Which oh. is also in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it is. yeah. Yeah. After he pops the pills or I know <laughs> Melissa came up because we were doing Standing we were, we were going to do all this other stuff. And Melissa goes, stop glamorizing drug use. <laughs> we're like, you're right. OK, we'll stop. Next <laughs> next location. <laughs> well, so Lance, where can people watch um, Finding Carlos? <clears throat> they can watch. So you can watch Finding Carlos. Anyone in Oklahoma can watch Finding Carlos the entire month of December at deadcenterfilm.org. And so, and if you, and I think if you, if you, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and stuff, but if you go to dead center, it'll be there through December 31st. And uh, where can people find you? People can find me (laughs) right here at my favorite podcast. (laughs) Oh, perfect. I love that answer. Oh, well, thank you so much for for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for doing this podcast because I do think it's important for people to know that there are awesome things happening here. So thank you for including me. We appreciate that. So thank you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Yeah, happy holidays. Thank you so much for joining us today. We truly appreciate your listening to these stories. You can find us on Instagram at ActionCityOKC or for business inquiries, email us at hello at ActionCityOKC.com. Action City is produced by Blackened Studios. You can find the studio on Instagram and Facebook at Blackened Studios. Creative services provided by Ranger Creative. Music written and performed by Kansas City Bankroll.